Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Herd Tell. So you might have heard tell that there's a whole lot of legal news out there, and it's seeping all over the cultural and political discourse that we normally talk about. In fact, last week the Supreme Court term ended with two really important cases that came out on Thursday, but the news of those cases was kind of chased off of social media by another legal case, the Bill Cosby fiasco, and his vacation of sentence that let him out of prison. This is all on the backdrop of yet another legal story that has been all over social media and the collective consciousness, the hashtag Free Britney movement, where pop superstar Britney Spears is embroiled into a legal fight over her conservatorship that has been court-appointed. Many of people didn't even know what a conservatorship might have been before they heard about that. Folks may not have understood all the things about prosecutorial misconduct that surrounded the Cosby case. And these Supreme Court decisions can be very, very complicated, and the top-line items that hit all the right marks on social media for culture warrioring and hashtagging and fighting amongst ourselves doesn't get into the details of how to explain something that's really, really complicated, like voting rights, that you have to go all the way back to the Voting Rights Act and the Civil Rights Act itself to understand the basis of where some of this law is coming from. So what we're going to do today on Herd Tales, we're going to turn to where we usually turn for legal advice, our friend M. Carpenter. She's an attorney. She's a writer for Ordinary Times. She writes a weekly legal feature that's always breaking down usually some sort of a Supreme Court case. So we're going to ask her all these questions about what we've been seeing in the news. Free Britney, Bill Cosby, SCOTUS, voting rights, all kinds of good legal stuff today on Herd Tell, right after this. And we're joined once again with our friend, attorney M. Carpenter. How are you? Great, thanks. So we've just finished a really busy SCOTUS term, the Supreme Court of the United States. There's a lot of legal news about things like voting rights, and then there's a lot of pop culture news with Cosby and Britney, so we wanted to have you on uh, to walk us and explain to us non-lawyer types some of the legalese of all these things. So we really appreciate your time today. Thank you. Happy to be here. Always happy to law explain. Law explain. Well, let's law explain generally before we delve into some of the actual cases. The Supreme Court term. There's a misconception. There's there's always stuff on social media about how the court breaks ideologically. It's always split. Of course, there's a six-three conservative liberal split on the court right now on paper. But in reality, that's not really how it always breaks out, even though some of the bigger cases, that may be the case. What, what was the overall uh, decisions from a kind of a larger picture view of this court term? How did it break down? What did it really look like? Because you've written before and explained it to me, explained it to the audience that, you know, these these ideological lines are not always what you think they are. And a lot of these court cases break in ways you wouldn't expect just based off the ideology of the justices themselves. 
Right. Uh, an interesting stat that I think surprises a lot of people, and this is not a, an anomaly, this term. 43% of the um, cases this term were unanimous. There was no dissent. They were either 9-0 or 8-0 if there was a, a, a justice not available or recused. So um, that's 29 cases out of, oh, well, I don't have the, I think 67. Um, 29 of those were unanimous decisions. There were, the second highest percentage would be the 6-3 cases. However, those are not just ideological splits. That can be a mixture. 6-3 in, in, in any in any split could have had, you know, Gorsuch with Sotomayor, for example, and another justice on a criminal uh, criminal rights case happens sometimes. Um, so there were 16 of those, and of those 16, 10 of those, only 10 out of the 16 were ideological splits. Um, two of those we just got last week, which I'm sure we'll talk about later. Um, and eight of them were 5-4. The the least common was a 7-2 split. There were only four cases that were 7-2, and 10 that were 8-1. And the most written at, and I say written at, not written about purposefully because a lot of pundits and people in the media write at him, uh, Chief Justice John Roberts. When there's a lot of those weird splits, it's not been unusual for him to be the one to join with the liberals or vice versa in a lot of these splits. We're, we're quite a ways into the quote-unquote Roberts court since he became the chief justice. Uh, was there any big swings in this? We don't have an ACA type thing where, you know, John Roberts was front and center quite as much. Uh, he passed off the voting rights just to Alito to write the opinion on that. What, what's the overall opinion of the Roberts court and his steering of the court as this term comes to a close? Well, I can tell you that Justice Roberts was in the majority 91% of the time this term, which sounds like a lot, uh, but that's the same as Justice Barrett. She was also in the majority 91% of the time, but they um, pale in comparison to Justice Brett I Like Beer Kavanaugh, who was in the majority 97% of the time, uh, which I found to be pretty interesting. So I think that the, the prevailing narrative of the... Um, the splits, the ideological splits, are are not uh, are obviously not that are not accurate. Um, of the the three liberal justices, Breyer and Kagan were in the majority, 76 and 75 percent of the time, uh, respectively, and Sotomayor 69 percent. So, uh, just looking at the percentages and the overall unanimity of the court or their their um, meeting of the minds, so to speak, I think that Justice Roberts isn't doing a, a, a bad job here of of um, holding the court to the standard of objectivity that, that we would like to see. Obviously, there are cases where that does not happen. Um, there are the opinions that seem, you know, predestined to be ideological splits, and then when that actually does happen, people say, "Look, see it. Look at our look at our partisan Supreme Court." So, but I think that happens with with um, every court. Um, so I don't think there's anything unusual about the numbers, the, the breakdowns that we're seeing with Roberts. Uh, I just want to, to point out or get a shout out here that anybody who wants to dig into these stats, you can find a really good article for this term. Their stats on SCOTUS blog. I don't know if anyone yep, I follow frequents them. SCOTUS blog. Yeah, they've, they've got a great article that breaks it all down. And I'm cheating right now and, and getting my numbers from that article as we speak. So yep. check out SCOTUS blog. 
Yeah, I use them all the time, especially when we do stuff for Ordinary Times at Ordinary-Times.com. At Ordinary Times, you wrote a multi-part deep dive into the newest justice, Amy Comey Barrett. You wrote uh, going through all her past case uh, opinions and files and a lot of the things she had done previously. Now that she's got a full term under her belt, she's got her first opinions written. You did the the before. Now you can kind of do an after. What you expected from Justice Barrett? Were you surprised? How's she doing on the court? And uh, has your opinion of her changed from when you did that deep dive of what you thought she would be when she got onto the court? No, I think she's met expectations, good or bad. Uh, being her first term, you know, she's been kind of quiet. They don't usually throw a big controversial decision at a new justice to write. So I don't think anything came out where it was um, particularly um, justifying anyone's particulars or their priors uh, before her joining the court. Uh, there were a few where the side she came on, she would say, well, people would say, well, of course she's on that side. So that's going to happen. But uh, I'm looking forward to getting some more opinions from her and, and digging in a little deeper because um, nothing too interesting, in my opinion, this term on her. But I'm sure there was something I'm forgetting, uh, some opinion that she's involved in that would have been more newsworthy that's not coming to my mind right now. But um, I wasn't too, just nothing really stood out to me about her this term. The one that really did get a lot of attention last week when it came out, it's been a hot-button issue on the news for weeks and weeks. The news cycle has been uh, omnipresent with this topic for the better part of almost a year now with the past election and everything else that's gone on. There's a voting rights case uh, that came out of Arizona that SCOTUS ruled on. Uh, set it up for us, though. Now, th this came out of Arizona, but these are not the current Arizona laws and the, the audit and the circus that's going on right now. This is from before. They passed some voting uh, legislation. Set this up for folks before we delve into what the actual decision was of uh, Bronovich versus the DNC. Sure. Uh, these laws actually go back to, I believe, 2016-2017 in Arizona. Uh, the two restrictions or rules around voting that are at issue here is, one, a, uh, a law that any vote cast in the wrong precinct will be discarded entirely, um, not just for local election, but even you know national elections. Their, their votes on the national elections will be thrown out as well. The second is an anti-ballot harvesting provision, which is uh, makes it a crime, actually, for a completed ballot to be in the possession of anyone other than the voter, their family or caregiver, uh, the postal service, or an election official, meaning these community organizers and other third parties who go around and collect ballots and bring them in mass. And, and turn them in, that's no longer allowed in Arizona. So those are the two the two provisions that we are fighting about here. Um, so the Democratic National Committee in Arizona decided to file suit about these, these laws, believing that they are in violation of Section 2 of the Voters Voting Rights Act from, you know, back in 1965. The original text of that, and then slightly amended later, is just is basically that no voting qualification or prerequisite, or standard or practice or procedure, um, that denies or abridges the right of any citizen of the United States to vote on account of race or color is prohibited. So, when that chat when that statute was originally uh, put into place and challenged, 
there was a decision from the Supreme Court, I believe in this, yeah, this was 1980, it was Mobile versus Bolden. They said that if the practice or procedure at stake, or that they're arguing about, is um, unintentionally discriminatory, that meaning that that wasn't the intent behind the law, but that's kind of the effect of the law, that that is not a violation of the VRA. They didn't think the statute was written that way. Um, to which Congress said, well, no, that's exactly what we meant. And so they, which is what you want to see happen, I think, with the Supreme Court, is if they interpret a statute one way and Congress says, no, that's not what we meant, then Congress fixes the statute. So they did, and they changed it to um, to say that, one, that a practice or qualification prerequisite voting standard practice uh, which is applied in a manner which results in denial or abridgment of the right of any citizen to vote on account of race or color. That language and the legislative history said so specifically was intended to uh, to target disparate results of a, of a, of a statute or a voting restriction. I mean, that might not have been the, the intent of the law, but if that's the effect of it, that it is uh, has a disparate impact on minorities, then it's in violation of the VRA. So here we are, modern day Arizona, the DNC says that these laws have a disparate impact on minorities in Arizona, um, specifically uh, Native American or Indian, Hispanic, or uh, black minorities in Arizona, that they are the ones who, who take advantage of the um, vote harvesting, you know, or that tend to show up at the wrong precinct, according to the, the plaintiff uh, in the lower court. But when they looked at the actual percentages of how many people um, are showing up at the wrong precinct, it turns out that it was roughly 1% of, of each of those three minority groups that I mentioned were actually showing up at the wrong precinct. So, you know, around 99% of the votes cast by the minority groups mentioned were done so in the correct place. So there was only 0.15% um, of ballots that were thrown out under the provisions back in 2016. So those are some of the numbers that the court was looking at here when it finally made it up to the, the Supreme Court. And Justice Alito was assigned the writing of this, and we knew, based on the the, the way uh, opinions are assigned and how they are released, that this Bronovich case was either going to be the chief or Alito, and it was Alito. And not surprising to those who find the court to be partisan, it was a 6-3 split, conservatives versus the liberals, in holding up Arizona's um, Arizona's laws. Basically, he said, put forth sort of a five-point test, although he wanted to be very specific. He didn't intend for it to be a test or a, a bright-line test to govern all challenges to the statute, but rather guideposts, he said, of things to be considered on whether or not these, these, a restriction violates VRA. So... I can go through those if you'd like, or just sort of summarize for you where we where he ended up or why how he got there. Well, real, let's digress for just a second before we go into those specifics, though, because if if there was a headline for the Roberts Court, it's kind of become Congress needs to fix it. Um, mm -hmm. That's kind of been the motto of the Roberts Court from outside observers. They they really seem to want Congress to fix things legislatively. Just real quick, so so somebody like me has it all straight and correct. 
something like voting rights. We're dealing with states making laws and then the federal government over top of them coming back in discussing whether these laws are valid or not. The Voting Rights Act, of course, came out of the Civil Rights Act, which was a case of the federal government and the courts having to come in and tell the states, like, no, you can't override civil rights with your state's rights. Just real quick, explain to folks that there's a couple layers here to get through um, on why voting rights is such a hot topic issue and where the states have power, where the court has power, where the federal government has power, and why this has become such a ball of mess, uh, not just on social media, but legally it's rather complicated, is it not? It is, and we saw that with the challenges and the, the multiple lawsuits after the 2020 election. There was a lot of talk about um, whether the court was overstepping in telling certain states that their um, practices and procedures were, were or were not uh, appropriate. And states are permitted to establish the time, manner, and place of voting as the main three categories. Of course, what that means is open to interpretation, manner especially, the manner of voting. Um, manner meaning in person. Is it absentee ballot? Is it early voting? So there's been a lot of, of talk about that recently. But the the main thing is that the, what the government is looking at, when the federal government hearing a challenge to the, the, the VR, under the VRA is the impact on minorities. So can, you can choose your manner, but if your manner of voting is going to violate the, the statute, that's when the, the federal government's going to step in, hopefully. Um, and of course, there's been a lot of uh, concern that in recent years, the VRA is being weakened, um, especially if we go back to 2013 and Shelby County case versus Holder. And uh, that referred to a completely different section of the VRA, which was what we call preclearance, which was a provision that certain states with a history of Jim Crow laws or other ways of just making it difficult for blacks, especially black people, to vote, uh, that they had to, any change they made in their voting laws and regulations had to get pre-clearance, meaning somebody had to look at that law and, and make a determination of whether or not that was going to um, negatively burden or impact the voting rights of minorities before they could put that rule into practice. Shelby County in 2013, um, Justice Roberts, I believe, wrote that and basically said, this isn't necessary anymore. <laughs> which a lot of people took to believe, to took that as saying uh, there is no no voting rights discrimination anymore and we don't need the protections of the VRA. I don't think that's quite accurate. I don't think we went that far, but it was sort of the beginning of the um, war on voting rights as some people sort of sort of see what's happened since then. Fast forwarding here then to Bronovich case and not this is an opinion, not a legal opinion, just a personal M Carpenter opinion. The two restrictions that we're talking about here, the voting in your correct precinct or, and um, the vote har anti-ballot harvesting, I don't think that these particular restrictions are that onerous or that burdensome. There, You can uh, mail your ballot. You can send it with a family member. You can take it to a um, any polling place. It doesn't even have to be your polling place. There's many ways to get your ballot in rather than handing it to a third party. And as far as getting to your precinct, again, you don't have to. You you can 
vote early, you can or you can mail your, your ballot in. Or if you're not sure where your polling place is, which is a lot of people say, well, it's very confusing to know where your polling place is or where your precinct is. It changes all the time. It's people in minority groups are more um, mobile, meaning they're moving, changing addresses. It's a bigger burden on them to, to find their polling place. But that information is very easily available uh, online or by calling. And they actually mail out to every registered voter a sample ballot with their precinct information on it. And a pamphlet comes as well with that information. So I don't think that uh, finding out your polling place, and again, and if you show up at the wrong polling place, they will attempt to direct you to the correct one. So um, I don't necessarily think that these provisions are terribly burdensome. They may impact certain groups more than others, which is what Justice Alito even concedes, that yes, it seems that it does impact certain groups more than others. But uh, he weighs that, that balanced against the concerns of the state, the interest of the state in preventing their stated goal of preventing voting fraud or um, undue influence, people intimidating or coercing people into voting a certain way. Those strong interests weighed against what Alito terms to be uh, minor burdens, minor disparate impact that, that one outweighed the other. And the problem I have with that is where's the Where's the line? How much of a burden is too much? How much of a disparate impact is too much? What percentage of Hispanics or Indians or black people have to um, go to the wrong poll uh, and have their ballots thrown out before the court finds that there's a problem with the, the rules in place? That's always a, a, a question you have when, when the Supreme Court sets out a, a opinion with a sort of objective kind of or subjective and kind of nebulous testing or analysis of the facts. And we know the answer to this is, well, they're going to get a case before them where they have to apply these five guideposts, Alito called them, but it, it sure reads to me like a means test. I'm not a lawyer. You can correct me if I'm wrong, but it that sure looks like how it's going to be applied. So when you look at these five guideposts, he calls them, the differs from standard practice, uh, the size of the disparity, the size of the impact, these these five things. The thing that has happened since this uh, case came before the court, of course, is COVID, where now we have all these new state laws that have tried to either change or continue the things we saw in COVID, like expanded drop boxes, like expanded early voting, like uh, mail-in voting, these sorts of things, mm-hmm. is the concern at some point that they're going to get one of these cases. And these, the people that are against this ruling, by the way, this is the argument they're making is, hey, when the cases that are getting ready to come up out of the 2020 election go before the court, this is now going to be the standard they're going to be held to. And then we're going to have a problem because it's given inch and they're gonna, folks are going to take a mile with it. Yeah. Yeah. That was my concern as well, is that they're, these are just... Uh, it, it's almost going to be a I know it when I see it <laughs> type of analysis. I know when um, I see it. That's the um, pornography, the pornography the, standard the of obscenity. Right. I can't. I forget the justice's name. You can help me with it. But he says I don't know what pornography is, but I I know it when I see it. Kind of an infamous quote Correct. from him. But Correct. It, and is, I don't know how you I don't know how you would put a, a bright line rule on what percentage, but I think you could. I think you could say you know if. 
5% of a certain minority group does, isn't able to get their ballots in because they are not able for whatever reason to mail a ballot. And I'm having trouble with this because, again, I don't think these are onerous requirements, so I don't know uh, what kind of a hypothetical to suggest here. But, you know, at what point, at what percentage is a is too big of a disparate impact? I don't know, and I'm not sure how they would um, come to that. And I can see nobody wants to put that kind of a bright line rule in place. And I think that's part of why Alito is so um, explicit in saying that this is not a test. These are guideposts. So the counter argument to all that is going to be, of course, well, if you're going to go 5%, well, 5% of a minority population in Charleston, West Virginia is going to be a few thousand people. And 5% of the Mm -hmm. minority population of Atlanta, Georgia is going to be, you know, half the electorate how how is that going to be fair and there's no so i know we're chasing perfect and chasing the needle on big sweeping things here but that's going to be the counter argument is like if we start putting numbers and percentages we're, there's no way you're not going to disenfranchise somebody if we continue down the path as it's written here right right and, and i think yeah i think that's that's a challenge here um if you look at uh, the dissent that was written by Justice Kagan and joined by Breyer and Sotomayor, and I, I have to confess I didn't read it as closely as I did the majority because I was um, trying to, to analyze this <laughs> to write it up for ordinary-times.com. Her thought was that this was a much too narrow reading of the VRA Section 2, and this was not what was intended, and that any disparate impact if it is, if it impacts minorities more so than other groups, then that is a, um, by, by the intention of the statute, is, that's what is to be avoided and, and to be prohibited by the statute. So she advocates a much broader interpretation of, of when a disparate impact is enough to, to trigger the, the protections of the VRA, uh, which Alito calls a radical um, project is how he, he describes the dissent, but they, their view is a radical project. Is that a normal legal term, a radical project, or is that something he just kind of came up with? <laughs> it's not one I ever learned. I think that's a, an opinion. He, uh, he spent a good five or six or maybe, maybe even a few more pages just um, attacking the dissent, which uh, I sort of skipped over at that point because I hadn't read the dissent yet. So I can't tell you a whole lot about that other than he thinks that the minority or that the uh, dissent's view is much too broad and the dissent thinks his view is much too narrow. And apparently there's no one, no, no um, Goldilocks in the middle finding a sweet spot. And I don't, I don't know if there is one, um, but it is interesting, you know, that there these restrictions on voting are a lot more relaxed than they were in 1982 when the statute was amended to to be broader. Um, and that was another point that he made. You know, when when the VRA passed, people were largely required to vote in person on election day. So Alito reasons that that being the case at the time, there's no reason to think that Congress would think that uh, ballot harvesting or precinct requirements were beyond the pale. Those were normal things. There's no reason why the VRA would consider those things to be prohibited under under the rubric of the statute. Before we move off the Supreme Court, one thing that's a bit of a tradition is at the end of the term, they 
put out their list of cases they're going to be hearing for the next term. And one of the ones that kind of caught my eye is they took multiple cases for the next term involving Medicare, Medicaid, and payments and how disbursements are done and these sorts of things. You have, in your previous life, worked in those areas of law at the state level. They're not sexy culture war type cases, but they have widespread uh, power and a real ability to change a lot of people's lives in a hurry, these sorts of things. What does it tell you when SCOTUS bundles a bunch of like cases like that for a term that's coming up? It's kind of unusual. And when they do it, usually something rather big tends to happen, does it not? Uh, you would think. Yeah, I would think sometimes that that's a good uh a good a good chance that there's something brewing here um also it just shows that they're paying attention to an issue that's um very hotly debated or that's coming up a lot um it doesn't necessarily mean though that they're going to make any big changes or uh, come out with any sort of groundbreaking or milestone case uh, we're talking about, uh, in large part, and I and I haven't dug into much to these cases, but I I do know what you're what you're talking about, and uh, there a lot of these are about how much the the providers, hospitals, doctors, etc., are going to be reimbursed by Medicaid and Medicare, and I don't expect the court land too far on either side of that. It's probably going to be more of, again, a nebulous sort of standard uh, that they come out with if that's if they are asked to determine if rates are appropriate or sufficient or if there are cuts to these rates if they are done appropriately. So it just I think it just it's just a reflection of the fact that this is a big controversy right now and they've maybe have received so many petitions on this issue or there's so many um, different decisions coming out of circuits because circuit splits is a big way in which an issue gets before the Supreme Court if the, if multiple circuits are ruling in different ways on the same issue on different they're coming down on different sides that's one way an issue gets in front of, of the, the court so I think it's more a reflection of just this is a big issue right now than it is necessarily that there's big changes coming you wrote extensively uh, a very in-depth piece at Ordinary-Times.com on the Cosby situation. It's titled something that I will not utter here because this is a family-friendly program. But um, <laughs> Cosby, to to kind of sketch it, uh, the Reader's Digest version, your, your line on the Cosby thing was what the court ruled that ended up freeing him was, a, was not the Cosby case itself. It goes all the way back to the original prosecutor. Just break that down for folks that... You know, you can scream at the Supreme Court of Pennsylvania all you want to, and there's probably some valid criticism there as well, but that's not the real villain of this piece. Right. Uh, back when these original allegations, when these made, allegations were originally made in 2005, Bruce Castor, who was the prosecutor and most recently on Trump's legal team, but back in 2005 was the DA of, of Philadelphia, he of the county, he did not think he had a strong case because one of his big factors that he pointed to was that the victim in the case didn't report for a year. Uh, I think that's kind of a ridiculous reason or a ridiculous thing to hinge a prosecute, non-prosecute decision on. One year is not a long time uh, to delay reporting in the grand scheme of things. If you know anything about sexual assault victims or that years can go by before they tell anyone. They may never report it. So the fact that a year went by, I think, is a um, 
pretty weak reason for non-prosecution. And he also had some concerns about how she acted in the year following, that she was still in contact with Cosby over the course of the year, even though the evidence was that those conversations were about, you know, uh, why did you do this to me or what did you do to me that night? You know, I think that those conversations, um, far from being evidence that nothing happened, are what would have been strong evidence that something happened to her. So I think if he had not made that decision, you know, and he had tried Cosby, well, obviously, if he had tried Cosby, we wouldn't be in this situation, but he didn't. And the decision that he made, which, first of all, if he's making this decision on to help the victim, that that's that's pretty remarkable and kind of hard to believe if he, when he said, oh, I figured if I didn't prosecute, then he couldn't take the fifth. Uh, plead the Fifth Amendment via uh, Fifth Amendment rights when he was deposed in a civil suit. Now, in 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 a normal case, it's not a, involving Bill Cosby. Can you imagine if a prosecutor said, you know, she'd be better off suing that Joe Schmo for money? Joe Schmo may not have any money. This decision would be completely nonsensical if Bill Cosby wasn't a multi-millionaire, hundred millionaire. There's no money to get. There's no justice to be to be gotten that way in most cases. So um, it's a very unusual situation, I think, for a prosecutor to say this is this is for the benefit of the civil case. So a prosecutor's not really supposed to care about the civil case. Um, and my problem with the decision of the Pennsylvania Supreme Court is that they just took as truth that this was the actual motivation, and not just that there was it was the motivation, but that it was an agreement, and that her lawyers, the, the victim's lawyers, as well as Cosby's lawyers, knew that that was the reason for his decision. His press release at that time, the statement that he gave when he announced his decision not to prosecute, didn't say anything about a civil case or about helping the civil case. He did say that it may be her best way of, of getting some justice would be to sue, but he didn't say, so I'm going to dismiss the charges so that Cosby's required to testify. And the other part of it that I don't understand is Cosby's lawyers allowing him to be deposed and to testify without a fight. Um, normally there is not a Fifth Amendment uh, right to not incriminate yourself in a civil case unless there is a pending criminal charge. It doesn't mean necessarily that a charge is filed and is already uh, pending against you. You can, if there's one imminent, I think you would have a good argument against incriminating yourself, but they made no such argument. Um, and without having that, an actual agreement in writing or something that they could point to, you know, I think that it was foolish for his attorneys to have let him testify. Um, and some people use that as the evidence that an agreement must have existed, because otherwise, why would they let him testify? Either way, I see is bad lawyering. I see bad lawyering from Cosby's lawyers. Um, and the one who could testify as to whether or not there was an agreement in place, the lawyer that Cosby had at the time, who supposedly had this agreement with Castor, he's dead. There is no, no way to ask him what happened. So bad lawyering back in 2005 is what got us where we are today. Do you subscribe to the theory that this was the Pennsylvania Supreme Court using a really high-profile case to kind of send a message to their prosecutors and attorneys to clean their stuff up, for lack of a better way of phrasing it? Uh, I don't know. They gave, I mean, they they gave so much credence to this retconned um, 
a story that, that the prosecutor gives 10 years after the fact. I mean, to me, it's kind of the opposite. They're saying, you know, you can come back 10 years later and say, well, this is what happened, and you have no proof of that. And they allowed the prosecution to get away with that, uh, quite frankly. I mean, it helped it helped the defendant in this case. And normally I'm the first to jump on a case that in which the court finds in favor of a defendant over the state. I've, uh, I've been a prosecutor. I've been a defense attorney. Uh, I see both sides of it, I think. Um, but I do, maybe because I did it for longer, I do find myself you know, more strongly on the side of the defendant and, and the, the constitutional rights of a defendant. So I'm not sure... Um, Maybe it does. I guess it, it does send a message to future prosecutors that if you um, are going to, to make a decision like this, you should memorialize it somewhere. Um, but I feel like even if you don't, apparently the court's just going to take your word for it 10 years later. I think they give credibility to the prosecutor here that they um, are not giving to anyone else involved. And once again, the victim wasn't considered the way they probably should have been in the legal proceedings, which is probably the bigger story that people should have took away and probably won't, right? Yeah, and her lawyers say, no, they were not aware of this deal. Castor says they were okay with it, that he told them about it, discussed it with them, and they were fine with it and agreed with his, his plan. They're, the lawyers say that never happened, that they found out when a reporter came to them. Um, most states, and it differs by state, but most states have some statute, which is sort of a victim's bill of rights. Now, a victim is not usually, uh, in any place that I'm aware of, able to give the yay or nay to a prosecutor. They don't have the final word. But the prosecutor is at least supposed to discuss it with them and get their opinion before making a decision. Like They don't control, they can't say, no, you can't do it, and that binds the prosecutor. But they are supposed to be involved in it. And if this happened the way the attorneys for the victim say it did, then that was definitely a dropped ball. Speaking of control, before we let you go, uh, legal control, the Free Britney hashtag, the Britney Spears conservative case kind of exploded last week. Just real quick, the viral video and audio of her, she she wasn't testifying. She just kind of went rogue on a checkup call to her conservatorship mm -hmm. for 25 minutes. It, explain to folks real quick, just a conservatorship that she she did that on the call, but that wasn't a legal proceeding. I know a lot of people are wondering why there hasn't been a ruling and why there's not a hearing. She did that extrajudicially, I guess is the only way to explain it. Just real quick, explain mm -hmm. to people that just because it went viral, there's a really long process here, and there is still a lot of criticism on a very complicated and very powerful piece of the legal system a lot of people may not have heard of before the free Britney case in these conservatorships. Yeah, to, uh, to be placed under a conservatorship, you know, you, somebody somewhere along the line had to convince a court that she was not able to handle her own affairs, her finances, her medical decisions, things of that nature. And there's a That's lot of financial, under. we, we got to get the elephant out of the room here. There's a lot of, I know the first attorney she had has made, I think it's over $3 million on this conservative shit. Like there's a lot of money to be made here. Let's just get that out front that this is not a normal, like uh, somebody with dementia or something like that. This is Britney Spears we're talking. Obviously. And we all saw, you know, back in 2007, I think it was, when she was having her issues, they were pretty widely known. So maybe back in the end at that time, it wasn't hard to show that, you know, she needs some help managing her day-to-day -day 
her day-to-day life. Um, but that's been several years back. That, and so, you know, she gave this statement, which people have been uh, suspicious for a while, that she was unhappy and, you know, hence the Free Britney movement. But it was not under oath, I don't think. I don't know if it was or not, actually. I didn't hear the recording. But if it was just a status conference, she may not have been. Uh, and more importantly, she's not uh, capable, or nobody is actually capable of, of evaluating their self for a court. I think that before a court is going to make any decision to remove the conservatorship, they're going to need another evaluation or an evaluation of her to determine whether or not she's fit to be able to handle her her own life now. Um, there was the, a big deal was made because an order came out after her testament or after her statement to the court. An order came out in which the judge said the conservatorship is continuing. Um, the, the motion to remove the conservator, who was her father, was denied. That order comes after a, a hearing in November. And I know that seems weird, but judges sometimes, for whatever reason, can take a very long time to enter an order after a hearing. Um, judges speak through their order. So if there's a hearing, whatever happens in the hearing has to be produ- reduced to writing, and that's this order. And for whatever reason, it took the judge, what, seven months or so to sign this order. And it, she happened to do so after the, the statement. Uh, but there's another hearing, or there is a hearing scheduled, I think, in a week or so to address the motion that Brittany's actually made here of, to remove the conservatorship. So we don't really know yet what the court's going to do. My suspicion is that there will be another an ordered court-ordered evaluation. Um, in the meantime, her manager has resigned because, he says, because Brittany wants to retire, so he no longer needs to, to manage her career. And the attorney that she was assigned has retired, or I'm sorry, resigned from, from further representation, which I think is interesting. It makes me think perhaps Brittany has expressed some displeasure with his representation of her. And, um, you know, it, it's difficult. It, it would be unethical for him to continue. Uh, he couldn't, if she wants to testify and complain about the things that her lawyer has done, that kind of puts him in a witness position. He couldn't effectively represent her when if she is um, testifying that she's unhappy and thinks that he has mistreated her as well. That may not be the case, but that's what I got out of that. Um, the fact that she's continued to perform and had a residency in Las Vegas for, for a few years and has made, I think, $60 million over these few years. You know, she's not capable of making medical decisions, or as she said, she can't pick the color of paint for her kitchen cabinets, but she can be out on stage making $60 million, off of which the people in her life are profiting. So I think um, I think it would be difficult for the judge not to make some changes, but we'll have to wait and see. And it's a good uh, microcosm lesson on just how powerful the law in America can be and how scary powerful it can be when not properly checked and or vetted and or understood by the people involved in it, isn't it? Yeah, I agree with that. M. Carpenter, she's brilliant. We use her for all kinds of legal stuff because she knows what she's talking about and she explains it so easily that even I can understand it. That's why I lean on her. Tell folks what you've got going on. You're writing at Ordinary Times. Your social media account is fantastic. You're one of the best followers on Twitter. Tell people where they can find you. I am at WVSquires at Twitter. That's my handle there. You can find me there. Uh, I, I write at Ordinary dash times.com i have a um, mostly weekly feature on wednesday wednesday writs which is usually a at least one good write-up of a case um, to explain the case and usually a collection of interesting law related links 
Um, today there's one out. You can go, uh, well, today's Wednesday. Um, there's a new one there, which is a breakdown of the Brnovich decision, maybe a little more clear than I'm able to, to speak about it. Um, and there's a good write-up on the Cosby. I think think it's good, in my opinion, that came out also on there. You can find, if you click on my name there, you can see the stuff I've put out there. Read everything she writes. It's what I use so I sound like I know what I'm talking about when I talk about legal matters. Uh, congratulations, Em. You're also the first repeat guest on her tell, so you get that for your mantelpiece. We'll maybe work up a T-shirt for you or something. And uh, we greatly appreciate you, my friend. Uh, thank you so much for the time today. Thanks for having me. Anytime. We'll do it again soon, ma'am. All right. Bye-bye. So on Heard Tell, we're always talking about turning down the noise of what we hear in the news cycle and on social media and getting to the actual information we need to discern and understand the times we're living in. And in no other realm is that probably more important than when we're dealing with things like Supreme Court decisions. We've seen over the years that Supreme Court decisions are increasingly volatile in the political and cultural sphere. And there's a lot of reasons for that that we can delve into another time. But the point for now is where are you going to get good information on that? Folks are just reactionary to a lot of these court cases and they don't actually dig into the meat of them. These things are complicated, like Em was telling us. The idea of a partisan court is there, that it does happen, but there's also a lot of nuances in that, and the court often splits under very different lines. One reason I want to talk to people like him is because of, we mentioned Amy Comey Barrett. Well, when Amy Comey Barrett was nominated, she sat down, read all of her opinions and case laws, and wrote a multi-part series on it. And it was amazing to watch the pushback she got because a lot of people on Twitter and elsewhere just immediately blasted her. like, why would you even bother reading that? And they didn't even understand that politically, M aligns very differently than Amy Comey Barrett did. But she wanted to read the information for herself and then explain all the rest of us so that we would know what we were getting in a Supreme Court nominee, not just the reactionary or partisan line on how that nominee was going to be. The thing with these Supreme Court justices is these are not random people on Twitter saying things. When they say something from the bench of the Supreme Court, it matters and it affects everybody. So even if you don't like them, you better understand where they're coming from and have good information about what they are going to do and not do. And it goes for the same with something like Bill Cosby or even the Free Britney thing. We should understand these laws because they have wide-ranging effects. In the Cosby case, somebody who has admitted under oath in depositions that he drugged women for the purposes of using them for sex is now free to walk the earth. In the case of Britney Spears, somebody who is extremely rich has had the full power of the government take away most of her rights because they said that she's not able to adjudicate them herself. It's scary how powerful the law is, but we shouldn't be scared of the law. We need to understand it better so that when these issues arise and they're complicated, we can explain them to each other and advocate for things like freedom and justice and the American way. That's it for this edition of Herd Tell. Please continue to subscribe wherever you're listening to this podcast, whether it's iTunes, Spotify, Google, wherever that may be. Please subscribe to the YouTube page. There's going to be some live video content coming out there in the days to come. Go ahead and subscribe now and you'll be ahead of time. And wherever you're listening or watching this, please make sure you leave a comment and a rating. Those are really important for other folks to know that our little program is worth checking out. So a big thank you to all of you for listening, for sharing, for telling folks about the program, and for most of all, just for listening. Wherever you are across the street or around the world, we appreciate you. Y'all take care until we talk again.
All the music on Her Tell is provided under a creative content license from MonsterCat.com. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.